Hello and welcome to Getting a Grip, your weekly tennis podcast. We serve up news and opinion on the world of tennis, hopefully without fault. So let us string you along with content from the beloved tennis tour all the way to grassroots tennis. You've got to weigh it up between are you going to go for like the Grand Slam specifically or are you going to go for like the best ranking you can get, get into the, you know, the finals at the end of the year. It's almost impossible to do both, especially like over any long period of time. I don't think anyone particularly thought about how they set it up because obviously tennis is one of these sports that started off very niche and it was very much for the upper classes and you know the people at the top would make the decisions anyway but then on the other hand if it if they start winning matches and it goes well and then you know it could be like a springboard for them in their own careers so welcome back to the getting a grip tennis podcast um Yes, we are wearing, well, it looks like Merlin's wearing green, but he's actually wearing black. But we are both wearing green t-shirts today. Uh, this is definitely not a green jumper. It's a green t-shirt underneath. Just the way it's coming off on camera, I don't know. Could be. Could I be think you're camera. blind, mate, but all right. God, that's not very good, is it, if I'm playing tennis? Anyway, yes. So, obviously, we're going to round up the latest news in the tennis world um, this week. So, we've got obviously got Monte Carlo. Um, we've had... Four three-set matches in the quarterfinals, which I think is the first time that's ever happened. Um, and then we've got, obviously, this latest kind of news, um, this undercover investigation from The Telegraph, looking at this secret society of umpires and the kind of power structures there, which is kind of interesting how it links into player tantrums and all that sort of stuff that seems to be on the increase recently. Um, we've also got the Billie Jean King Cup, that's a bit of a mouthful, going on this week. Um, GB have got a new look team, a lot younger than previous teams, so we're going to be looking at that. But yes, the first place to start, obviously, is Monte Carlo. As I said, we had these four kind of marathon quarterfinal matches all going the full distance. I caught up with the Zverev Sinner match yesterday, which... I mean, everyone thought it was going to be close anyway before it started. <laughs> it went, I think it went on for th like over three hours in the end. Ridiculous. Proper, it's a long proper, proper grinding session on the clay, that is. Um, and yeah, Zverev came out on top just in the end. It was 7-5 in the third set tiebreak. Um, and then obviously we had Sissipas um, against Schwartzburn, which was weird because like, I think it was Sissipas was up like three or four. No, what was it? Yeah, three love in the second set having won the first set and then suddenly it was like four love down in the third when I when I checked again I was like what's going on here and then just an incredible finish to that match um I don't know if you saw his his diving volley like Boris Becker-esque right at the end to set up match point just ridiculous um so I think he's probably the favorite um going forward given that he won it last year and the other I mean I mean there's still Dimitrov still left in it he's looking pretty tasty um, but yeah, obviously Alcaraz has been knocked out. Djokovic has been knocked out. Many people probably would have thought that they would have been two of the uh, the big names to look out for, but not to be. And then obviously the the British interests are also out. Norian Evans um, and Stan still struggling coming back from his injury, which is a little bit sad. But knowing what he's like, he could possibly just you know turn it on and go on a a winning streak in one of these tournaments. Um, yeah, what stands out for you from kind of the week so far in Monte Carlo? 
Uh, I'll be honest, actually, I think that's a very good point. This isn't one of my stand-up points, but I think it's a very good point about Stan. Um, especially with, you know, like we talked last time about, about Songa retiring and, you know, it's a, a sort of change of the old guard and whatnot, of the, all the people we grew up watching um, when we were kids and whatnot. But I think, yeah, as you, you're completely right. Like, he could just turn it on. And it's the same with Nadal at the start of this year. He just turned it on. Uh, and then, unfortunately, it was injury that stopped him. Uh, and it's the same with people like Favrinka. It was the same with people like Songa uh, a few years ago as well. Like, he had these he had these blasts on a tour um, that sort of fizzle out after a while. Like I said, I think it all comes down to scheduling, um, where you've got, you know, players can't maintain this sort of form week in, week out, because obviously there's so much to do and all the travelling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the only thing that's comparable to in the world of sport is maybe the football scheduling uh, for the top teams. So, you know, it's 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 tough. And I think this is where Norian Evans have probably fallen prey as well because they're, they're making deep runs in tournaments these days. Uh, and even if you're not winning them, those deep runs are going to lead to that exhaustion as we go through. Um, and I, I think that's the stand-up point. I think, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the deep, deep end of the tour where it's not majorly televised because it's not a grand slam, etc. You know, you, you're going to get this exhaustion starting to show. And that that does start to help you pick who's most likely going to be fit for grand, uh, grand slams and, uh, and title challenges, especially with the French Open coming up. Yeah, I think, we, yeah, we've touched on this before. <laughs> the kind of, the battle or the, you've got to weigh it up between are you going to go for like the Grand Slam specifically or are you going to go for like the best ranking you can get, get into the, you know, the finals at the end of the year? It's almost impossible to do both, especially like over any long period of time. I always found it like amazing that you literally have like a player playing in like a semi or a final on obviously like a Saturday or a Sunday and then literally like they've got to fly somewhere else and start again on like the Monday or Tuesday of the next week. Mm. This is... There's no way this is like a sustainable thing, but obviously, yeah, the schedules are just ridiculous. And yeah, if you're if you're going to if you need to push yourselves up the rankings, which obviously then influences how easy it is to get into the Grand Slams, because obviously you need like a, a exactly. ranking. Then you've almost got to do this at least for a certain amount of time, like like Norrie has to kind of yeah push his ranking yeah. up, and then you kind of reap the benefits of that further down the line in terms of yeah seeding and all that sort of stuff. Short-term suffering for long-term gain. Yeah, but it's no wonder that there are so many players are getting injured and having to manage this that. This is it. And yeah, this is it. Like obviously, if you look at Alcaraz, he uh, he won in Miami, obviously, but then he just he wasn't able to transfer that over. Obviously, it's a change of surface as well. It's just yeah, so different. He's young, change of surface. Uh, you know, like again, that sort of thing, that transition that certainly comes with experience. Um, and I think very few players are able to transition from one surface to the other that easily, to be quite honest. Yeah. He, I mean, yeah, again, he's only 18, so give, we'll give him a break on that on that front. Exactly. Got to give him something. He's a big winner. Maybe he had a little bit of a celebration, a bit of extra food or something. Who knows? A few, few tequilas, maybe. You never know. I don't know. Like a lot of a lot of sports people, you know, a lot of athletes, are, especially tennis players, are all teetotal these uh, these days. So, yeah. yeah, celebrations might be a little bit of a thing of the past. Um, but you know, you never know. Um, yeah, I, I, as you say, I think you know you've got the outside chance that Dimitrov could come through and and make a good impact in Monte Carlo, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I'm glad to see him playing, uh, you know, a bit more at the top of his game again. Um, because he was always a very entertaining player, uh, and he certainly has, 
He has that grace, that decorum. This is why people probably compared him to Federer at one point, just because he yeah, he does give you that same sense of you're watching something that's more like art than dirty sport, you know. So um, that's always nice. Bit, bit and I must admit, clay, isn't it? As opposed to oh yeah, exactly. Mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I must admit, I I'm surprised by the the Sitsipas Schwartzman outcome because I I thought at the moment Schwartzman, especially on a clay as well, I thought he'd come out as a little bit more of a favourite, but. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of support at the moment as well, Schwartzman. I think a lot of people are enjoying watching him. Um, mm. Yeah, a little pocket rocket. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. if we if we look ahead to, you know, the rest of the week, we've obviously got semi-final number one is, uh, I can't even, I don't know if I can say his name right, Davidovich Fakina, something like that, versus Dimitrov. And then we've got Sissipas versus Zverev. Who, who do you see coming out on top in those two matches? And, Ultimately, who do you think is going to win the tournament? Um, I mean, like I say, the the Zverev Sinner match was a long one, quite tiring, especially for someone like Zverev. I think who's probably not used to those long hauls. He tries to shape his game around early finishes if he can, which also leads to more errors. Uh, you know, we've all we've all had a little discussion about the fact that he's good at double faults uh, before. So, like I say, it depends which Zverev turns up. But I would probably bet more towards Sitsipas based on the fact that Zverev might be a little more tired. Uh, I know that they both had longer matches, but still, um, you know, it's a it's an outlasting thing that I think this comes down to. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you know Sitsipas being the favourite for the tournament is not a bad idea. But um, like I say, I'm just looking forward to seeing it all unfold. Yeah, I I don't think anyone's at a particular advantage because they've all gone three set matches, pretty pretty long matches. Yeah, this is it, isn't it? So obviously, yeah, this Varavon was like over three hours, which is crazy. So like you said, it depends how he's going to recover from that. In in the other match, yeah, I would probably say Sissipas in that match. But yeah, I think it's probably like 55-45 in Sissipas' favour. Not, not, I don't think there's a massive amount in it. Um, and then in the other one, we've got, yeah, Djokovic is conquering Davidovich Fakina up against Dimitrov. I personally, I think Dimitrov will edge it, but you know, you get these, like you said before, these players that get into these kind of streaks during tournaments and they're normally ones that go like almost all the way, such as the kind of back to back nature yeah. of the matches. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't rule him out, but I would probably say Dimitrov will edge it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I, I would say Dimitrov would edge it, but that that's based on current stats. And and you know me, I'm a good fan of the underdog mentality, uh, and a player that sort of latches onto that. So uh, you know, I think saying Dimitrov is a favourite, I don't think it really means much in this case. Again, it's not a Grand Slam. There's there's less of a crowd. It's yeah, it's it's tough to know. Yeah, I just want to see two single handers in the final. To be honest, that's that is a good point. It's coming back. It's coming back. Yeah. It's good, nice for the eyes, bit of aesthetic stuff. So, second talking point is this kind of investigation or undercover investigation by the Telegraph into what they've called a secret society of umpires. Um, They've talked about things like power abuses um, that have been going on for like the last 15 years and that has been known to tennis authorities. People being kept quiet by NDAs, um, having to, in some cases, use your body to kind of, um, you know, advance yourself up the ladder. Um, and obviously, like a small number of people basically having control over the appointments of umpires and 
yeah, exploiting people as a result of that and people being afraid to speak out, obviously, because then that tends to lead them to being ostracised. Is yeah. this a surprise to you? Or cause obviously, you, I think you've done a bit of umpiring, haven't you? Or you've at least gone through like the qualification process. Um, I was reading that it's like they appoint nine for the ITF, nine for the ATP, I think seven for the WTA, and then they've got like five development umpires. What's your view on this in this whole kind of situation that's been going on for quite a while now? I'll be honest, I'm not surprised. And I think the main reason I'm not surprised is, and people probably don't realise this, that being a professional umpire, unless you are one of these these top umpires as you just described, it's not paid. So even at lower tournaments, even at, say, for Queens, for example, let's take Queens on the grass. This is one that I was invited to actually um, do a couple of years back when I first did my qualification. Uh, I'd done a couple of bits uh, before. I was actually asked to line judge, not to actually uh, umpire, just to clarify. Um, but, you know, great honour. I was unfortunately away on holiday, so I couldn't actually make it. But the problem is, with all of these things, even at Queens, you don't get paid. You merely get expenses paid for. They give you lunch. And they'll give you travel. And that is it. So I think part of the issue here is obviously the culture that has been fostered as a result of the fact that it's all volunteers. And if people want to make money out of it and people enjoy it so much that they want to make umpiring their life and the tennis tour their life, even though they're not players, you do have to do something else than obviously make money and put in the effort that way. So I think that this, uh, obviously this investigation showed that uh, individuals not only have to, um, what's that? the polite term would be something else, but kiss ass, that sort of thing is, um, you know, very much something that needs to be done. But but you also need to do, well, as the article has said, you know, there's there's been a lot of allegations of uh, the sexual nature. So um, some, play, uh, some umpires have said about using their body in order to climb that, uh, that slow rank, and there's almost an expectation of it. So I think, again, I think that this is the problem that started with the fact that it is a voluntary thing and it's for people who really love tennis but if you want to make something of it the only way is obviously doing it through this and I, obviously it's a problem obviously it needs to change and i think we need some serious investigations obviously this is just a journalistic investigation um and i think that we need proper police investigation into this sort of thing as well but yeah obviously it's, uh, it's a little bit concerning yeah i think the general structure of it obviously needs to be um redesigned basically because there were things that they talked about like performances of umpires being assessed by umpires literally in the like a band immediately above them and obviously like that yeah that leads to conflict of interest and you've also got Absolutely. this very like small group of people who evaluate or reevaluate um umpires at the end of like each year i think it is so you definitely need like some kind of independent body or whatever it is involved there because it's just it's just never going to work out when you've yeah you've got basically people literally in the level above you making decisions i don't know whoever kind of thought that was a good way to set it up i guess once these things are put in place no one will very I don't think it's question it they just kind of go with it and it takes mm. these kind of things like news headlines or whatever to wake people up and think okay maybe we actually need to do something about this if people get a bit too comfortable. I don't think anyone 
particularly thought about how they set it up because obviously tennis is one of these sports that started off very niche and it was very much for the upper classes and you know the people at the top would make the decisions anyway that's slowly been changing especially as um you know the progressive nature of sport in general has you know has gone on throughout the, the recent periods of time which is very good so obviously you know you know like uh gender equality specifically in the sport you know all of these things have naturally somewhat opposed the the balance that was set originally especially by sort of the that opinion that tennis is an only an upper class sport which at one point it was that's that's true to say but um yeah very much a nature that that's changing and like i say everything else needs to change with it and unfortunately i think this is one of the final relics that uh, of that time yeah i think it's just the general like modernization process of tennis and obviously we've talked about other areas as well like for in the LTA for example that, that need changing and this yeah there's there's mm. a whole load of things that need to be changed and this is one of those things that fits into that broader modernization okay so yeah on the women's side we've got the Billie Jean King Cup going on this week I actually managed to say that first time um thank you but uh, yeah, we've got this new look team for GB, um, sort of a younger, younger team. We've got Radicanu, Dart, Swan, etc. Um, and no Joanna Conta or Heather Watson in the team. Um, so obviously trying to shift towards looking to the future, um, starting with this tie against Czech Republic. And obviously, I think it's level at the moment, as we speak, this is on Saturday, um, and we've got Radicanu who won her match yesterday. She's up against um, another one of the Czech players today. I think it's her name is Vondrasova. Probably said that completely wrong. Um, but yeah, what, what what are your thoughts on this kind of this new look team? Should we really be ignoring the more experienced players? Is that going to harm our chances at least in the short term? If we, if we're kind of just looking towards these this whole younger team or yeah, is it like a short-term pain for long-term gain kind of move, do you think? I think I could compare it to a particular football team, or a couple of particular football teams even, uh, where, you know, obviously we need to get some of the um, get some of the older guard changed and bring in the newer players to set up the future, which I completely agree with. Uh, I do agree that, you know, sort of some short-term pain for long-term gain is, is a very important move in order to progress things forwards and obviously give us that success we're looking for in the future. Um, but again, I think much like anything, you need senior players to be leading that progress. And I don't think that women's GB team it has any necessary toxic players. So that's where I would say that, you know, taking out the likes of Watson and Conta may not be in the interest long term. At least, I don't think it will necessarily harm it too much, but I think it could have probably had more of a benefit having the senior players there, not only for mentoring because uh, of all the experience they have, but also just generally having those older players there does give the younger players a better sense of, um, you know, how they're going to manage not only the, not the matches that they're in, but also the support that they need in that scenario. Because obviously playing uh, international sport can actually be quite stressful, especially with the media attention that it can gain. Yeah, maybe it's it's more of like a baptism of fire, maybe. Um, not not using these older players, I suppose, could, yeah, like you said, it could go one of two ways. It could They could really um, miss that mentorship and that could kind of, damage their 
prospects, at least in this competition. Um, yeah. And who knows about confidence going forward? But then on the other hand, if it if they start winning matches and it goes well, and then you know it could be like a springboard for them in their own careers. So it, it's it's difficult to say really. But um, it, it's a tactic that you can't say it's wrong. But I would I I personally feel like neglecting senior players might not be in the best interest. But like I say, I could be easily proven wrong because it's a tactic that's been used before and has been used successfully. So, Yeah, let, let's hope we are wrong because it would be nice to see, obviously, seeing GB do well, but also see some of these younger girls kind of push on. We've, we've seen them in, you know, earlier rounds of Wimbledon and kind of smaller-ish tournaments. But we've, yeah. uh, we've obviously got Radicani who's come through, but it would be nice to have well, Radikanu, I, I think that she's won the US Open, yes, but I still think that she's on the exact same level as the rest of these uh, younger women as well, because, like I say, building a career and building sustainability on a tour, specifically in women's tennis, is, is, a, is a great task. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's come up before, I can't remember who said it recently in an interview about a week or two ago, that, you know, give Radikanu a, a year, and then maybe you'll see her dominating. Uh, which you know could could very well be possible. There's a lot to work on, but um, yeah, I think that's the case that you know they they need that time to adjust. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that, you're right. Radicanu is kind of yeah, she is still <laughs> on that. She's same... a lot fresher than they give her credit for. Yeah, yeah. So like expectations have really you got to be got to be careful with those because it's you know as soon as someone wins like a a major title, it's so easy to just expect that it's going to continue forever, but she is literally like 19 or like very young when we're talking about like Alcaraz on the men's side again very young like he's if he's won um in Miami doesn't necessarily mean he's going to win like loads of these one Masters 1000 events or suddenly you know start going to the semis or the final of a Grand Slam it you've just got to be patient they're going to be ups and downs but hopefully the overall trajectory is you know upward but sustainable is the main thing all right, um, we've got another junior update in the in the Devon area again. So I'll leave it to you, Merlin, to take it away. Yeah, the the Bobby Tracy Academy. Um, the head coach Ryan, he's he's brought on a player um, who's you know he's breached the top thirty uh, under fourteens in the country, which uh, is fantastic news. This is something that he he'd recently done this year. Um, had a tournament last week. Um, and after losing to the second seed in the tournament, um, he was playing some good tennis nonetheless. Uh, he then went on to beat the 13th best uh, player, the you know ranked 13 for under 14s uh, in the country, uh, beat him 6-2, 6-3. So, you know, he's put in a really good performance the last week, and I think that... Um, you know this this is this sort of recognition and this sort of uh, this progression by obviously beating a, a somewhat better player than uh, he is ranked himself uh, is definitely going to do wonders for confidence. And, and as we were saying with uh, you know GB women's team, like you need these wins uh, and this progress in order to build the sustainability as you go through a career. So you know that that's something that we'll definitely uh, be looking at building on for him. And um, you know our head coach is he's doing a wonderful job with him. Yeah, it's a small success, isn't it? Just you know a little little seeds for the confidence over, over time. Quite right. Quite right. Once you once you get something like that under your belt, even if you've lost a couple of tournaments, you've gone out early in a couple of rounds, it's not a problem. Once you get something like this, it, it certainly does give you fuel for the next period of time uh, in order to train and compete. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's the same for for any level really. Once you Correct. know that you can compete with like a certain level of player, then you know, yeah. even if you have like a bad day, you know that if I'm playing to my potential, I can compete yeah. with like this certain level of player. So yeah, that, that's really important. Have you played? It does great things for the work ethic. Have you played against? Have him? I played against him? Yeah, I have played against. Him. I train against him sometimes. So. Um, well, obviously, you know myself, I'm a level three coach, but uh, I hit in with all of these academy uh, juniors um, in, in at the club in Bobby Tracy. Um, and yeah, I've played against him. He He's quite a talent for his age. And I mean, I wish I'd even started tennis at his age. He's 13. Um, I only started tennis probably when I was, what, 16. Um, That's crazy. I played a lot of tennis. I did it the quick way. Picked up a few injuries on my way. You remember when we first started playing that you know I was pretty much always injured. You didn't play uh, knees. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you never got a game out of me for about a year. Um, yeah, exactly. So, but like I say, if I if I had the talent he had at that age, then you know I could have made something of tennis. And and he's very much got that potential to make something out of himself for tennis, uh, which is really exciting. Is it it's exciting any, to be near? Is there anything like about his game that stands out, or is it kind of just? solid all round what do you see it's just i think it's the touch i think it's that ability to know sometimes where to put the ball and how you put that ball in that place on the court for example you know when to drop shot when to to push someone a little bit further back uh, i'd like to say that those are probably some of the standout features for talent but for the features, the things that i think that are going to make him win is the consistency and this is something that the head coach uh, ryan goes for very heavily uh, in training. It's all about making more balls. You know, that's maybe that Andy Murray mentality, but it's about knowing when to attack as well. So I, I think that that's very much the, the thing that stands out for him is it's, he's building his consistency. He's going to make more balls um, and make more of them at the, at the pace uh, and the, you know, the consistency of the players above them. All right. Look forward to, yeah, checking in on it, on his progress as we go through. Like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the at that age, the kind of improvement is kind of it can be, it can go in like steps almost. Sometimes, it, like things just like take off, and then you know there's a little period of consolidation. Exactly. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how he gets on. Absolutely. Yeah, time for a bit of tennis trivia. Nearly forgot it this week. Um, obviously, Merlin has still got the the top score. We haven't aggregated the scores, but. Four is the score to beat, technically, from Merlin last time. So I've right, tried right. to kind of adjust the questions a little bit. I don't know if they're going to be more difficult or not, but we shall see. Okay, number one. Which female tennis player has won the most Grand Slams <laughs> in the Open era? So your options are Serena Williams, um, Margaret Court, Steffi Graf, or Martina Navratilova. And these are Grand Slams in the Open era, you say? Yes, in the Open era. So, the person who's won the most Grand Slams in the Open era is Serena Williams. Interesting fact, though, if we're not including the Open era, the person that's won the most Grand Slams is Margaret Court. But she was also the first woman to win a Grand Slam in the Open era, I believe in 1970. Oh, well done. You're not getting any Thank extra you. points for that. But... <laughs> I should. <laughs> Okay, well done. Number two, smartass. Um, first Asian tennis player to be ranked number one was either Naomi Osaka, Li Na, Peng Shui, or Sanya Mirza. 
female. Yep, female first female Asian tennis player to be ranked number so one. So just say them all again for me. Oh god, pronunciation is difficult. Naomi Osaka, Li Na, Peng Shui, or Sanya Mirza. Or Mirza. Interesting. I'm gonna say Naomi Osaka. That is correct. Well done. Yeah, I mean, good. could be could be a little bit surprising given that that's only happened fairly recently. And obviously, Lee Na, I remember her quite well. She was a. I don't remember player. her ever being. I don't ever remember her being like top seed though. That was my issue. So yeah, I was hoping that was going to catch you out. She did win. I'm pretty sure she won the Australian Open. I'm not sure if she won any other Grand Slams, but she was. Yeah, she was a yeah. top player. She just didn't didn't reach that. You know, the holy grail of number one. Okay, two from two. So number three. Uh, you know your favourite here, history of tennis kind of questions. No, oh, lovely. Them. In what year was the Australian Open played on grass for the final time? Oh, interesting. Was it 1978, 1982, 1985, or 1987? Okay. So, 19... Hmm. Interesting. Can you say all four again, please? Yep, yeah, so it's 78, 82... 85 or 87. Stunned silence. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit stuck with this one. It's a bit of a corker, that one. Obviously, we've talked before about, um, when we were talking about grips and kind of tennis styles, we were talking about how, you know, it used to be the kind of Eastern grip that was used on like lower skinny courts and like most yeah. sounds were grass for quite a while actually for yeah for quite a while that's true that's very true until they introduced new services because of well technology of understanding how that works um i'm gonna say 87 i feel like this is a question where you're trying to trick me out and say it's earlier when it's actually later so 87 is your answer yeah that is correct well done. I thought I did think it was going to catch you out because that was later than I expected it to be. But like that was still in. Yeah, the, it's quite the, late actually. Still in the Borg kind of macro era. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you are correct. So that's three from three. Means this might, we might be on for a record here. So I'll try. Question four. I think you sh you should probably get this one. How long was the longest singles match in recorded tennis history? I haven't I oh. haven't done you in with the Oh options. you've got options for me, that's good, yeah. that's good. And they're they're not like all really close. It's you know, I think they're fair. So we've got six hours thirty three minutes, eleven hours five minutes, seven hours and twelve minutes, or eight hours and forty nine minutes. Eleven hours five minutes. Oh, John is no Nicholas Mahu. That is correct again. Yeah, it was one of his against Nicholson, who spread over three days at the 2010 Wimbledon um, Grand Slam. So, do you know what this We've talked was about this before. In it's incredible. Set. I think it was 70 68, wasn't it, in that final <laughs> set? Well. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. That's incredible. How many sets is that, really? 
That's like 10 sets. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And hopefully you won't have to see that again. I mean, as much as it was kind of a great, unique spectacle. Yeah. The thing of the past now. Oh, so here we go. This is for the full set. I think, you, you, yeah, you got a good chance of this one as well. So obviously we've been talking about, we talked a little bit about umpiring today. And obviously there's been an increase in the number of kind of like player um, tantrums and like violations of the code of conduct and all that stuff. So my question for you is who got hit with the biggest fine in tennis history? <laughs> you thought I was going to say you got hit with like a rat. I thought you got hit by the biggest ball or something <laughs> like that. I don't know why. All I could think of was Denis Shapovalov hitting that umpire in the, in the eye and fracturing his <laughs> a skull or something. Jesus. No. <laughs> It's a bit more sedate than that. So yeah, it's the so who got hit with the biggest fine in tennis history? So your options are Serena Williams, Nick Kyrgios, David Nalbandian, or Bernard Tomic. Is this singular fine or adding them up? So this is like a a total fine given in one match, basically. One event. Okay. Yeah. I've got to go with Nick Kyrgios then. It feels like an easy answer. Drum roll, please. It's correct! He's got a yeah. <laughs> Who would have believed it? So yes, Who it, was, it, it was Nick Kyrgios. He got fined $113,000. And this was an yeah, accumulation of um, offences, including calling the chair umpire an effing tool, and oh, yeah. two of his rackets in Cincinnati in 2019. And obviously, the other ones that I mentioned, we've talked about in Albandia before, when he kicked that um, line judge's chair or whatever. In a yeah, that had to be one of the worst, but it was only one thing. He was fine until that moment in the match. So, But he got hit with a... That was $70,000 for that kind of like one, one event. Um... <laughs> Different time periods, though. They've definitely updated the fines mm. and made them harsher over the last 10 years. Yeah, how much of a difference that makes, so obviously that, that's something we have discussed. Tough before. to know. Um, and the other ones were, Tomic was in Wimbledon 2019, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, this is when he literally just like gave up, he didn't even try. And the oh, <laughs> the yeah. match was done in like less than an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. And then the Serena Williams one, this was back in US Open semi-final in 2009, so this was massive fine back then, it was $82,500. Um, and also ended the match when she called the line judge. Well, she didn't call the line judge. She said, I'll take this ball and shove it down your effing throat to the line judge. That's right. I remember. I remember her being right out of line in that match as well. don't know what happened to her. Good pun. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so that ended the match. Um, oh, that's I think that is one of the <laughs> that is one of the worst outbursts you can have because that's like such a... A personal attack with like oh yeah that's it. it it's verbal abuse if you call, if you call it anything else so yeah so there you go five out of five well done new new record score i don't know whether it's me giving you nicer questions or some of them are nicer knowledge, but... but you know i'll go out on a town tonight i'll celebrate that victory <laughs> um okay yeah so that rounds up for this week's podcast Obviously, give it a follow if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even Google Podcasts. 
and give it a like, share it around, subscribe, all that stuff if you're on YouTube. And we'll see you in the next one.